0: Welcome to the Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Washington, D.C.'s Adams Morgan neighborhood. We are honored to be joined by Doug Marjoram today, uh, pioneering Santa Barbara winemaker retailer and restaurateur. Uh, Doug launched his life in wine when his family purchased an existing retail outlet in 1981. The wine cast quickly expanded to a simple bistro and then an award-winning restaurant that was a galvanizing force for the rapidly emerging Santa Barbara wine scene. Doug began making wine with local luminaries Bob Lindquist and Jim Flindan, eventually launching his own label Margin Wine Company in 2001. What began as one of the Valley's smallest enterprises has since become a local institution with Doug anointed wine enthusiast, winemaker of the year in 2022. Congratulations, Jeff.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, uh,
0: thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, the premise here is blessedly simple. Uh, we each have a bottle to share with one another. Um, Doug has brought his flagship red blend, M5, uh, and I followed suit with a classic Rhone archetype from the Pope's New Castle, Chateau de uh, and the domain Bois de Barsan. We'll taste through them both while riffing about life and wine along the way, and then I'll close things out with a bit of verse dedicated to our guest. If you like the sound of what we're drinking, both wines will be available for sale at Reveler's Hour, Washington's premier wine and pasta bar directly across the street from our line Hotel Studios in Adams Morgan. Um, thanks again, Doug. Uh, before we uh, taste the wine here, uh, I have you know some questions about your... Earlier life in wine, um, we previously established, you know, for the sake of your bio, that you know you kind of got your start when your family decided they wanted to go into the retail business. Um, did the family always drink wine? Did you grow up in a wine-loving household?
1: We didn't drink wine until we took the European vacation. Oh, uh, nice! And I, I was 15, I was fourteen years old. So okay. It was in the mid-70s.
0: But you grew up in Santa Barbara, did you
1: not? No, I grew up in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Yep, okay. In, in the valley. I was a valley kid. Oh, nice. Uh, it, was, it was interesting because uh, when I graduated from college, <clears throat> I was in love with a French girl and I left, uh, excuse me, graduated from high school, I was in love with a French girl and I immediately, immediately went to France, right, like the day I graduated from high school. And I came back and they moved to my parents had moved to Santa Barbara. <laughs> Oh, fascinating. And I'm like, well, why didn't you do that a long time ago? Because <laughs> it was, you know, the valley was not the best place to grow up, and Santa Barbara's just so stupidly beautiful. I feel, like, I feel
0: like the valley has its own kind of perverse charms.
1: It, it does, but they're they're not uh, charming. <laughs> <laughs> maybe or maybe they are, but they're insidiously charming. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so. But so then they they got sort of awoken to wine at the same time I did. Oh, and fascinating. Then we, and when we got back from that trip, I was 15, and I started collecting I collected Chateau de to pop in my in my room in Woodlawn Hills. Oh wow! Uh, they aged very quickly. I didn't. I didn't <laughs> even realize that was an option
0: at, at age fifteen.
1: I, I would go down with my dad down to Vendome Liquors, which was just down the street from our house. Yeah, and uh, I would buy my own my own bottles and had a little wine rack in my room and and I would I was allowed to open them for special occasions. And oh, that's so cool! Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and the like. So that's when they started really getting into wine and and my uh, love of all things French and love of, of a particular French woman uh, made me want to open a wine bar when I graduated from college. So I, I graduated from UCSB. And,
0: uh, Are they the banana slugs?
1: <laughs> no, that's Santa Cruz. Oh, <laughs> I always get those mixed up. What is that? We're, uh, we're the gauchos. Oh, the gauchos. That's good. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And so... Um, uh, I, I was telling my father, I, I said, I want to open a wine bar, and he thought it was a terrible idea. He says, oh, because yeah. it is a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it, it really hadn't been done yet. Uh, There's the, there yeah. the London yeah. Wine Bar in San Francisco, but there wasn't there wasn't such a thing in it, 1981. That entity didn't exist didn't, outside of Paris. It didn't exist. Yeah, And so he, he met a gentleman at a cocktail party who had a wine shop, and he was saying, oh, my son wants to open a wine bar in Santa Barbara. And the guy said, oh, he should, he should open it right next door to my wine shop. And then people can come into my wine shop and go to your wine bar yeah, and, cool. and vice versa. Well, in 1981, it was quite the, the recession time. And uh, it, we ended up buying the wine shop for a remarkable $25,000. And they were they were going out of business. Did and that include the wine? That included everything. And probably the most valuable thing, which they didn't even include in the purchase price, was the lease. They had a long-term lease at a very low rate. And so we were able to parlay that into expanding into uh, uh, opening up a little wine bar and then then further expanding into a restaurant, then having a more casual restaurant, then having a catering business and, and the whole shmeal.
0: So the intent was always to have a restaurant?
1: It, it was always to have a wine bar with very very simple food. Yeah. Uh, but as you do in life, as you know, you keep trying to make things better. Yeah. And so we, each each iteration, we'd say, you know, let's let's expand the kitchen, let's expand the food. No oh, cool. Let's expand the wine list. Let's expand the retail wine store. Let's go into catering. Yeah. And we just kept kept doing that. And so by the time I sold it, and I I I had bought my family out by that time. I yeah. Bought, I bought them out in the late 1990s, uh, and I owned it. myself, and then I sold it in 2007. At that time, we had uh, two wine cast restaurants, one in Santa Barbara, one in Los Olivos. We had two restaurants called Intermezzo, which were a casual companion to the wine cast restaurant where people could wait and have a drink while they're waiting to get into the restaurant. We had a wine store, and then we had a warehouse because we sold a tremendous amount of Santa Barbara wine on futures. Oh wow! We had the Santa Barbara County Wine Futures Program, which is just this huge thing.
0: Now, uh, when you first purchased, you know, when you first got into the game in 1981, um, was Santa Barbara wine a significant part of your program? No, no. Uh, yeah.
1: Mainly because there were no wineries. I mean, yeah. Essentially, it was Firestone. Yeah. And then soon after that, uh, Zaka Mesa. Uh-huh. Uh, but there were really only oh, and, two. And Zaka
0: Mesa gave birth to both Bob and Jim, essentially.
1: Absolutely correct. Yeah. And Adam Tolmac yeah. Ohio. Uh, and and so what? So in 81. They were, they were working at Zaka Mesa, yeah. G- Jim and Bob, and, and uh, uh, they came down and came to my wine shop and came to my wine bar. And we just became Insta friends. Yeah. And we traveled to Europe together and I bought their wine when they started their own brands, uh, Coupé and Obol Climat. And we, we did everything together. And then we started our own label in 1986 called Vita Nova. And uh, we made wines together from 86 uh, to 1998.
0: So you all kind of came up together yeah. in, that, in that scene. Yeah. Uh, that's really a, cool. It was a
1: really great time for Santa Barbara. The wineries were popping up you know, all, all over the place. And,
0: uh, and it wasn't terribly expensive to do that.
1: It, it, was, it was a relatively easy entry. Yeah. You know, not like now. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and, you know, the sense I get is that, um, you know, obviously you're, you're dealing with a historic winemaking region, but, you know, one with this kind of collective amnesia, because, you know, you have, you know, these late 18th century missionaries, you know, Growing grapes, making wine, and then you know, in an intervening century, you know, the industry all but disappears after after Prohibition, and then it pops up again. But a lot of that fruit,
1: you know, ends up in the hands of Napa Valley wineries. Absolutely, you know, when I, so the, there were a lot of actual vineyards, which was which is sort of the California model to some degree. But I would say, in when I started, about eighty-five percent of all the fruit left the county yeah. and went north.
0: And you know, what clicked for people? What kind of changed?
1: Um, obviously santa barbara is a big destination and and i think people wanted to even then even before it became more fashionable to you know eat local be local or you know uh uh the restaurants and, the, and the, my wine shop and the other wine shops in the, the aspiring
0: stuff. like Paul Giamatti's of the world wanted to hop in their car and, you know, <laughs> go to wine country.
1: God, I just, I just saw that again recently. Oh, yeah. How did, how did, so uh, it, for, it's for it's those
0: of you uh, listening that, that don't know, um, uh, in the movie Sideways, they are in uh, Santa Barbara wine country. They are not in Napa. I think a lot of people like watch that movie and, you know, they assume because Napa is kind of this, you know, iconic brand that hangs over the state that, you know, they're, they're, they're north. But, you know, Napa doesn't really do Pinot. Um, no. no, but the central coast does, and so um, you know all the you know bucolic farm country that they are they're driving through um, you know in various states of moral decrepitude is um, uh, how how's that aged?
1: Oh, it was interesting to watch it again. I didn't, I really didn't realize how how dark and and well the, it, the protagonist is kind
0: of morally reprehensible. Yeah, they're yeah. both. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> right. And you sort of gave
1: him some sort of. Uh, Benefited the doubt because they were, you know, into wine and they. Yeah, yeah, But, yeah. but in watching it again, and they're just, they're just despicable, <laughs> uh, despicable <laughs> people. But he gets the girl <laughs> in the end. Yeah, uh, does he? Oh uh,
0: yeah, I think I think Virginia, <laughs> like I mean uh, the 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 kind of the most. Preposterous conceit in the context of that movie is that Virginia Madsen ends up with Paul Giamatti, but uh, um, I, I think that is that is the implication.
1: Yeah, I, I, I thought he was lonely and drinking Cheval Blanc at a diner, eating a hamburger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, I, I will say, like, the, the thing I dug about that movie that I feel like it got right was, um, you know, it was clearly written by somebody who loved that scene and was plugged into that scene yeah. and, and loved wine in a particular way that at that moment was very different than. You know the the prevailing market trends. You know absolutely. He
1: he he wrote his life. Uh, he he sat at the hitching post bar. The book came out years before the movie did. Uh, the hitching post
0: being the restaurant featured in the movie. Exactly yeah.
1: right. And and he was a he was a drinker and a lover of wine and, and sort of discovered that area. And he wrote the book sort of as a. a an homage. Uh, well, in our borrowed autobiographical <laughs> journey of, of what what he how he experienced that yeah. that area, um, but he's not as despicable as. Those yeah, two well, no, I mean, were. like watching the movie too. Like,
0: uh, um, uh, you know, there's there's this quote. Um, I forget. I, I think this you know this guy talking about his dad who was into wine. It's like my dad was an alcoholic who called it collecting. Uh, right. And and there's there's a bit of that you know in in that in that movie. Um, but uh,
1: but it certainly did changed the whole wine scene in Santa Barbara yeah. I mean it really and it really elevated Pinot Noir to just a whole new level a cult uh, it, it did yeah. and in uh, quite obviously the Pinot Noirs from Santa Rita Hills are pretty remarkable I mean there it's a really really great yeah. place yeah and grow then Pinot Noir people and started
0: planting Pinot where Pinot has no business being planted
1: that's what happens And every time a varietal gets popular yeah uh, they you know so Pinot Noir people love Pinot Noir. It's grown in limestone soils in a super cold climate in the Santa Rita Hills. And then, in order to uh, cash in on that, they planted in Paso Robles uh, on the wrong side of the Highway 101, and it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, then people I mean, start then get... saying, "Oh, I don't like Pinot Noir." No, you just don't like cold, hot climate Pinot Noir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like
0: you know people make kind of the same big-ass red wine that is actually, actually has some residual sugar to it and you know, has this fruit-punchy flavor profile, and they just kind of like slap a different name on it you know, every succeeding you know, five years or so. Right, right. Um, but it's really the same wine.
1: I do have to tell you a funny story. Uh, I, I make Amaro. Oh, awesome. Uh, and we buy, uh, I, I buy... I buy late harvest grapes and fortify it, but uh, we make so much of it that I sometimes need to buy bulk port Uh, So I contacted... Which is like a
0: big part historically of the, you know, of the California wine industry. Like that's what your winos of the day would have been drinking. Yeah, Ruby Port. So I buy
1: Ruby Port, an agent and barrel from either, uh, I I buy it mainly from Napa Valley Port Works. And so I asked them for some samples and uh, uh, like three days later, he shows up at the winery, and I'm cooking lunch, and I'm like, what are you doing? I thought you were just going to sit him down. He goes, no, I was driving down. I figured I'd just come by and say hi, and I said, well, let's, let's taste them. And he says, what are you using this for, your Pinot Noir or your Syrah? <laughs> and I said, I said, what? He goes, are you putting it in your Pinot Noir or are you putting it in your Syrah? And I'm like, I, I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, everyone I sell port down here puts it in, in their... Yeah, it's, it's basically like, like a natural mega-perp, you know? Exactly. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. it's done by wineries we won't mention uh, that are <laughs> very, very popular that have sold for millions of dollars. Uh, and so I said, no, I make Amaro, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so he he got that. But I'm like, like, who do you sell it to? Yeah, there's,
0: he, there's more money in spiked Syrah and Pinot than there is in, in Amaro. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you you make Amaro, you make you make Pinot Noir uh, as well, but uh, we're not drinking either of those today. We're drinking... Um, a, a traditional Rhone blend um, uh, called uh, M5. Uh, and this is this is kind of your flagship wine at Marjoram uh, Wine Company, is it not?
1: Yeah, this is what I set out to make when I uh, started my winery. Oh, cool. I, um, uh, and I've been making it now, uh, we're on a 22nd 20, 20 vintage. Um, and it's pretty much the blend has, I mean, the blend has changed, changes every year, just depending on what we're, what we're dealt with. Um, but it's pretty. It's been a pretty consistent wine. We just recently did a 20-year vertical. I know. I read about that actually. Yeah.
0: So I love. Uh, I love. So so for the uninitiated, uh, I'm just gonna you know get it out there so we can actually talk about the component parts. But um, uh, this is a GSM blend, what the cool kids call GSM. So uh, you got Grenache, Syrah, and Mavedra, and then uh, two more C's in the mix here: Cunois and Sansot, And um, uh, this is a write-up of the. Uh, um, the 20 year vertical. And uh, I like this quote. Um, you're talking about the blend here, and you said, uh, We use Grenache as the base and then add Syrah till it tips and Mavedra till we like it. The cunwa and Sansou are the salt and pepper. Yep. Um, uh, that was, that's lyrical. I like uh, Syrah till it tips and Mavedra till we like it. Um, uh, you know,
1: what do each of those kind of bring to the party? Well, we want it to be a Grenache. I I want it to smell like Grenache and, and be a Grenache wine. So we put it in Syrah until it till it becomes not Granache. And then, okay. we, then we back it off so it stays Granashi. So we, we build it up that way. And then Morved, you know, it's, there's a point there where you, you you would do the you would you would do the same thing I do. You'd sit there and you'd put the graduated cylinder, you put in Five percent more than you put in seven. Yeah, you you're probably more exacting about it than I do. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I would just sit there with the pipette and like. That's, uh, that's, yeah. that's exactly how we do it. Yeah, and yeah. we get it to right to where the more is fits into that little trio. Yeah. And then the, it's so incredible how impactful Cunoise and Senso are. Uh, you wouldn't think they would be, but especially the Cunoise, aromatically, it's a very, very aromatic grape. Yeah. It almost smells like watermelon candy or watermelon seed. It's a, it's a
0: really fun, there are a few people both in California and in, in the Rhone working with Cunoise as an individual, you know, as a soloist. And it can make really compelling, you know, um, mono varietal wines. They're, they're uniformly light. Um, and like heavily perfumed. But, yeah, they're uh,
1: very, very fruity and yeah. very light. And the, the grape is, the clusters are just huge. And yeah. uh, I, I, I've never felt like I wanted to make a varietal kunoise. Uh, we use it a lot for our rosé. It's yeah. adds a really nice component yeah, yeah. for the rosé. Uh, the Senso is more, I think, more compelling for me. As, and we do make a varietal Senso. Yeah. Uh, but we we have about, at the estate, we have about an acre and a half of Senso to acre and a half of cunoise. And uh, which just is just the right amount, And so we're able to make uh, a little bit of rosé out of that, add it to the M5, and then also make a varietal sensô.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, sensô is kind of like the prototypical Provençal rosé workhorse. Um, what makes Grenache kind of such, a, you know, a good fit for your corner of Santa Barbara, and you know, why does it, you know, work so well as kind of the headliner in this plan?
1: Well, for me, you know, Grenache is my favorite. Great, It's my oh, favorite cool. flavor. I, I love. feel like I feel like uh,
0: people rarely, you know, give Grenache that love, that shine. Yeah,
1: I I love Grenache. I love Grenache in all its form. I love it as rosé. I love Grenache blanc. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, We even make a Banyuls style late harvest uh, fortified oh, Grenache. Cool. Um, but the so I learned how to make wine from Jib Uh and in fact, and you, we were talking before we started the show about how uh, uh, we were talking about some road wines being Burgundian in style. Mm-hmm. So Grenache and Pinot Noir are, from a, from a grape standpoint, obviously, they have completely different flavors, but it, easily oxidized, very thin-skinned, really low pigment, just like Pinot Noir. And so it's re, it, it really requires a deft touch because it's a very delicate grape. It, it, if you don't stay on top of it, you can, you can go in a lot of directions that, that you don't want to go. Uh, so we use, you know, we use big barrels, we, we do hand punch down, uh, we co-ferment so extend the, to be able to extend the macerations, mm-hmm. uh, and, we, and we ferment really, uh, you know, our ferments are 14 to 21 days, which is almost sort of unheard of, yeah. which everything about winemaking is counterintuitive, that actually makes wines that are more that have less harsh tannins, it gives them more fine tannins. And
0: yeah, it's, it's always wild because, you know, the tannins polymerize, um, but, you know, perceptually for us, you know, we perceive, they're, they're actually, you know, they're these longer chain polyphenols at that point, but perceptually, you know, we taste them as finer. Um, and Correct. I, I actually like the French, the French, we'll say like melted tannins, uh, yeah. which, which
1: always felt like kind of a good way to, you know, just dis- describe that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely, that's what extended maceration does is, yeah. that, is those, have a lot, those long tannins. I always say the grape skins sort of suck back in the, the, the harsher tannins as the longer they stay in, the, yeah. in the, the longer they macerate.
0: How has this wine, you know, you've been making this for over two decades now, And you know you had made wine before, you know, kind of going into this project. So you know, I feel like you had you were out of your winemaking adolescence at that point, and you kind of had a sense of what you wanted to make. But how has this wine evolved um, as you worked with it over two decades?
1: It hasn't. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's
0: pretty much so. A, it's like Athena. It, it, frung, it like sprung fully forth, like fully formed from its creator's head, and you yeah. Know, been, yeah. I
1: mean, it's uh, as we've you know we've now have the estate vineyard, which which has been a big game changer. Uh, you know, initially I bought, and that's in Los Olivos. Olivos. Uh, Los Olivos. Los Olivos. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously the uh, some of the vineyard sources have changed over those 20, 20 years. Yeah. But the whole idea behind it and the and the theory behind it has has not changed. Yeah. Um, I think we are doing more stem inclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are doing more native yeast, yeah. uh, and and those are probably the biggest changes. But we've always done we've always done a whole berry fermentation. So it has a slight carbonic maceration, uh, you know, Beaujolais esque kind yeah. of, of, of sensibility to it. Um, but it really hasn't changed that much. Yeah. It, it's 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 weird. You have these little benchmark moments, and, and when I first had chef de pop as a as a kid. Uh, you know, it used to be much more of a lighter in a, in a Grenache-based wine. And uh, obviously as the critics got involved and, and as uh, people were looking for a higher score and, and farming Grenache is so difficult in Chateauneuf, that uh, the wines became more, a little more Syrah-based. I think the pendulum is swinging back, and you're seeing yeah. more Grenache. And, and now all the top wines are Grenache-based wines, and then yeah. they also make a, maybe a, a lower-tier Chateauneuf that is more Syrah-based. Um, but I, I, I do like that it's lighter, and it's, uh, uh, it's a wine that surprisingly ages, even though you, don't, you wouldn't expect it to yeah no that,
0: that seemed to be kind of a uh, takeaway from the 20-year year vertical that you know you were pleasantly surprised by how well how well the wine said. Yeah, uh, held up.
1: the best wine was 03. no cool <laughs> and uh, they're all fresh they're all bright that's awesome uh and we, and we you know we're really low intervention uh winemaking we keep the leaves suspended we keep co2 in the wine uh, we use very little sulfur yeah uh, we don't use a lot of new wood um we use big barrels um so it's uh it's been it's been a labor of love, but it's really, it's the idea behind it really actually has not changed.
0: That's cool. And I mean, that must have been validating, you know, revisiting yeah. that wine and, you know, having no idea, you know, um, how it had held up to, to see that. Well, I'd opened some so... of
1: those bottles before. I mean, yeah, yeah. just like Jim, uh, I take five cases of every wine I make and, and put it away. Yeah. And so we have a, we have a pretty healthy library of, of wines to be able to go back and look at them and see how they're doing.
0: Yeah, oh, that's cool. Um, how do people respond to this wine when you first released it, and has that kind of changed at all?
1: Um, it's a hard wine not to like. Yeah. Uh, well, I, and
0: it's also, it's also priced, you know, really yeah. affordably.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's not a quaffer, and it's not, a, it's not supposed to be just, it's not a, it's a, it's a complex wine, but uh, I, I sometimes call it my puppy wine, because if you don't like this wine, you don't like puppies. Uh, mm-hmm. because it's it's really a very it's a, it's a very pleasing uh, set of flavors. Uh, I see people swirling and smelling longer than you would think a, a regular consumer would do because there's such an array of aromas in there with yeah. those five different varietals. Um, so, and it's also I think the the best thing about it and one of the reasons I love Cote d'Iron and Chateau de pop uh, and, and those wines of those areas, it just, it just goes with such a myriad of different foods. You can yeah. have it with fatty fish, you can have it with pasta bolognese you can have it, I, one of the great Things we ever got with Coleman Andrews with at Severe magazine with did, he did the top 100 food and wine experiences in the on Earth. Oh and, wow! And I think we were 32. It was uh, an In-N-Out burger and M5 Red. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome! <laughs> I really like that.
0: Uh, super cool. Um, yeah, that 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 doesn't suck. That's that is kind of like the that's like the Paul Giamatti. Uh, yeah, you I mean, know, but in, uh, in, a, in a way, And yeah, yeah.
1: we you know in Santa Barbara especially we're just sort of <clears throat> the wine is very well known and I mean I have one restaurant maybe. Probably the most well-known restaurant in Montecito called Lucky's. Uh, they've been they've been pouring this by the glass for almost fifteen years. No, oh, awesome. And they've never taken it off. And they can't take it off basically yeah. because they took people just walk in and order it. You know, no, no, they don't have to look at a menu. They know we, they know it's there.
0: Um, do you get? You know, this is a, a bright, you know, full-fruited wine, befitting you know its origins in a sun-drenched place. But you know, it's very elegant. Um, you know, and and I feel I always run into this problem. You know, or not problem, just you know. Um, run into a a dilemma at the restaurant for the sake of pouring, you know, what I think of as kind of like a a more maximalist wine, a fuller-fruited wine. And, you know, it's not, you know, a consumer's idea of of something, you know, maximalist and big and bold and broad-shouldered. Do you run into that in the market for the sake of, of this?
1: no i think for some especially they they and for chefs as well i think it really pairs well with a lot of food and really yeah. enhances the cuisine it, having overextracted residual sugar powerful wines there's very few things you could really complement there's uh, there's soloist with that they 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 you know if you if you eat braised short rib every night then you're those those wines work with that yeah and you'll, uh, get, you'll get gout yeah i think with lighter the lighter cuisine and in the mediterranean cuisine especially what we have in santa barbara with a lot of you know seafood and we grill a lot yeah uh these kind of lighter wines work work really really well and it's i think the fashion interestingly enough is is swinging towards uh lighter more delicate more elegant wines that you that don't dominate a don't dominate a meal totally and I,
0: I think you know the the wine world is just you know more diverse for the sake of flavor profiles than mm-hmm. it ever ever has been. And I think you know there's a like a, a corner of the sandbox for everybody, um, which is, which is nice. Um, you know, and and there are you know a lot of different you know critical voices. Right. Um,
1: and, and that's why we so we, we kind of have our program is we do an M5 white, which is a, a white Rhone blend of five white varietals, and then we do Syrah, so We do a Northern Rhone style yeah. wine. We do a, uh, our state is, is co-planted to Viognier, so it's more of a Cortot style. Oh, cool really steep hillsides and uh, surprisingly enough three of the blocks are own rooted oh wild! Wow. which is not how done. do you get away with that uh we took a chance and oh, cool. decided to not use rootstock. and it's it's been a complete game changer for the quality of syrah we're getting off um, of our vineyard really high density planting single cordon uh, of syrah that is the, the what we're making from our estate is just uh, some of the best syrahs i've ever made so uh
0: the eternal question for the sake of ungrafted vines you know um, you know, what difference do you notice for the sake of, you know, the fruit that comes off those blocks versus your grafted Syrah?
1: Well, intellectually, the way I explain it is, you know, any there's an intersection, there's congestion. Okay. And so if you're taking a, a, a vinifera and putting it on an American rootstock, stock, they, they never match perfectly.
0: Yeah. And then for the uninitiated, there's a pernicious yellow aphid called phylloxera that forced vineyards around the world beginning in the late 19th century to graft um, the European grapevine. Uh, vinifera um, onto various hybrid American rootstocks that were resistant to the problem that we caused in the first place. Right. In, tr- in true American tradition, we were both the solution to and the cause of the problem. Um, it's, it's, it's really true. Yeah, uh, um, uh, but um, uh, there are corners of the world where ungrafted vines persist to this day, and typically has to do with you know prevailing local conditions, for the sake of volcanic soils or sandy soils or, or preposterously thin slaty soils. Um, right, like yeah.
1: like Benil and, yeah, and Yeah, yeah, and yeah. de Naval where there's yeah, still totally. there's still some actually pre phylloxera vines in existence. But
0: in, in California, that is you know not the case. And nope. actually, in California, like they've had the opposite problem. You know, there's there's a you know famously a, a, an insufficiently phylloxera resistant rootstock that uh, destroyed a lot of vineyards. Um, um, you know, a generation ago. Right. Um,
1: and, and Syrah especially is prone to having a short lifespan due to the issues of the of the grafting. Yeah, yeah. you, know, you, you go you go into the Southern Rhone now and you know people give the lifespan of Syrah you know, nine to fifteen years. And that's not you can't you can't do that because they, they start they, they start uh, the production goes down to such a degree. So we haven't had flocks for in Santa Barbara for many many years mm-hmm. uh we where our estate Syrah is there's one little road that gets up to it we don't share farming equipment with anybody and and we don't you know it's transferred by mud and dirt yeah. by coming from other places so we don't expect to get flocks obviously if we did that would be a, a huge tragedy but we're 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 taking a chance to to do uh, and you so you spoke
0: and, of this you know kind of um botanical exchange you know uh at the graft union um do you feel like Information is lost for the sake of um, you know the complexity of the the fruit that ultimately derived from those vines.
1: It always seems to be more of a vigor issue. Okay. It, either the, the rootstock is too vigorous for the vinifera, or vice versa. If you t- if you use a low vigor rootstock and then the, the the vinifera wants more, it's just the communication, especially in our dramatically changing climate uh, it's just it doesn't work all the time it's like
0: a bad game of telephone
1: yeah it is exactly right so yeah. uh, if you ever get a chance to come out in the vineyard it's it's really neat to see I mean the, the rest of the vineyard on the on the on the flat part was grafted I took over a vineyard that had was planted to all Italian varietals so on the bottom part except for the pick pool we grafted over everything oh, uh, interesting. Two, two Rhone varietals but on the top part uh, uh, there, there was uh, you type a, and in the San so we tore the whole thing out, replanted the whole thing, and that's when we decided to take three of the blocks and three of the clones and you, and and own root them. And, Have and, you
0: tasted those parcels side by side? Um, well, the different clones. Oh, okay, yeah. uh, so it's not so, a perfect, it's not a perfect scientific. Yeah, uh, experiment. and it's yeah. interesting.
1: The clones, the, the clones that we really thought we were gonna love the most are not the ones we love the most. I mean, like we yeah. The Estrella clone, which is a common clone for Syrah in California, and everyone uses it, but it's always, it's, to me, it's always the basic of, of any good Syrah. It's the weakest link in our in our um, interesting in our Syrah program, and and I have a couple acres of it. So yeah. it always sort of just goes into M5. It never really makes it into the estate Syrah. Yeah. The Alban clone, John Alban brought over from. You know, I don't know where he—he's he's, still—that's not declared where the, he got those cuttings from. Oh, so this is a suitcase clone.
0: Yeah, suitcase
1: yeah. clone named after John Alban. So that is—that is definitely the performer. And we have—we have one little jutting out rock, a uh, little peninsula in the vineyard that's all limestone. So we put the Alban, oh, cool. the Alban clone there, and that is the absolute. That's uh, block three. Uh, We—I <laughs> I should call it Alban clone on the label, but I don't because you know John. John gets plenty of attention already, so I just call it block three. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But that's our top, top estate Syrah. Oh, cool. Uh, And then we have uh, 470 and uh, 877 and 99.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so much of, you know, winemakers art is differentiating, you know, those wines, you know, that you're tasting in the cellar that, you know, can function as soloists and then those wines that work better in a choir.
1: Yeah, and generally, I, I, my four... I think my forte is, and I think I can always make a better wine by blending things together. Yeah. But sometimes you just get something that is just so remarkable on its own that you have to put it in That And that's what we do with Block Three. Take yeah,
0: sometimes it feels like you're doing a disservice. Yes, yeah. just something that's you know, um, you know, sufficiently special yeah. that that it deserves you know to shine. Yeah. Um, yeah, you feel like you'd just be fucking it up if you... <laughs> exactly right. and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's,
1: it's, the, it's even the, I always, you know, I, I think you had an opportunity to taste the Grenache uh, when, yeah, I, when yeah, I came yeah. by. Yeah, and, it's, and
0: it's, a, it's a really, you know, we, we've been throwing around the edge of the Burg, Burgundian, and I always, you know, struggle with that because it, <laughs> it feels very lazy um, uh, at times. Um, uh, but Burgundy as an archetype is synonymous with elegance, and, and yeah. you know, uh, or good Burgundy is. And, and uh, you know, it, that was a very elegant Syrah. A uh, very very elegant uh, grenache, rather.
1: But I think you know you saw the color, and, and I think a lot of winemakers are afraid of that color because yeah. it's such a low pigment grape. and when you do it in the low extraction style and you don't use enzymes, you get a very light wine, yeah, yeah. as the, as you do with really high quality pinot noir. Yeah, I mean so some of the, it's some old school pinots. You could put in one percent syrah and change the color. Yeah. But it takes it away from its absolute purity. Yeah. It's just that one percent. You think it wouldn't make a big difference, but uh, we we put no syrah in our grenache, and that's not common in California. Most people. Who label Grenache, Grenache uh, is it's not a hundred percent Grenache.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know they don't have to declare that. You nope. know? Yeah.
1: No, no. Yeah. Fifteen percent could be another varietal. Yeah. Um, so I brought
0: along a uh, a Chateauneuf. I um, was uh, inspired by your first wine love, and this comes from, uh, Bois de Barcon, um, which is um, uh, kind of a newer state, uh, Chateauneuf uh, for the uninitiated is the Pope's New Castle. Um, it is an iconic corner you know, certainly the most iconic corner of the southern Rhône and kind of the ultimate GSM blend. Uh, It was uh, the first kind of uh, codified appellation of the French uh, appellation Schemata, which was kind of enshrined in the late 20s, early 30s. And um, this is an estate. um, uh, It's owned by a couple um, Italian transplants, actually. So the family came from Piemont and uh, the domain was launched um, uh, in the 50s uh, by John Vercino and, um, now run by uh, his son, Jean-Paul. Um, and uh, Bois de Barsan uh, famously uses all 13 grapes that go into Chateauneuf. That's always a fun sommelier parlor trick. Um, although they kind of, they mess that up now. They, they've like, it's 18 now, and they're doing like the, the white and gray versions of everything, which, yeah. you know, is, is, is disappointing because I like the canonical uh, 13. But um, at any rate, uh, they famously use all of them. Um, and uh, this is predominantly Grenache at uh, 65% if assorted, Um, sources online are to be believed, and those are always to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, uh, 15% each Syrah and Vedra, and then 5% uh, um, the remaining 10 uh, allowable. And they work with all of them. Um, This is variously 9,200% whole cluster. Um, The vines range in age um, from uh, 30 plus to over um, 100 years old. Um, And uh, this is in a state that um, they uh, initially vinify in cement and um, stainless, uh, but uh, the wine uh, ages in uh, larger nuchal oak fooder. Fooder just massive vessels. And actually, uh, I read that they use um, uh, old Alsatian beer uh, uh, vessels uh, to age wine, um, which sounds odd, but like at the end of the day, you're just looking for a neutral, oxidative vessel, and, and um, you know those work nicely. Uh, what I adore about this wine is that it's kind of not... Um, the typical uh, Chateauneuf, as, as people have come to understand the wine, Chateauneuf is this, you know, essentially a plain, and it's covered with what's called galettes, which are these um, rocks from the basement of time that have been, you know, polished by, um, you know, thousands and of years' worth of, of you know, river washing. And, um, you know, you have this sun-kissed Mediterranean sun that is, you know... Ripening um, these grapes to perfection, or occasionally ripening them, and and a lot of people have come to expect this, like densely extraction, raisinated uh, kind of wine. But this one, um, you know, to my mind, is always pretty, um, and and I adore that about it. Uh, Have
1: you had this before? I have it. It's it's terrific, and um, it's it's (coughs) excuse me. It's quintessential. I I I always hesitate to use old world, new world. Because I think we were talking about that the, you go to the old world, they're doing more new world, and you come to the new world, and we're doing more old world. Yeah, uh, and it just feels like it, so it feels like, like a narrow,
0: it feels like a narrow and unimaginative perspective. Yeah, um, you know, and, and it's like inherently like who's who's new, who's old, you know, right. like.
1: Yeah. But there's there's things in this wine that we we probably couldn't get away with in making a California wine. Oh, fascinating. Why do uh, you say that? Uh, just because it has a it has sort of a. a little more volatile acidity to it. It's it's no. a little Italianated. It's interesting when you said it was an Italian wine yeah, yeah. because they, they tolerate higher volatile acidity levels than yeah. than we we do. And I, I don't know what the legal limit in, in France is, but uh, you know our, ours. Jim famously uh, Jim Clendenen, yeah. my mentor, loved. His wines were always right up against the legal limit for volatile acidity because yeah. it jumps out of the glass as this wine does. Yeah. But there's also this just lovely sort of iodine and dark yeah. darkness and licorice and it's very complex and very savage. And then I go back to my wine and it seems a little simpler. It seems. Well, it's, just, a, it's just kind of fresher. It's like it's like um, you
0: know I always think musically, so I, I feel like you know yours is, is a little like. You know more soprano. It's like higher tones, yeah. and, and then and then you know get get a few more bass notes. Um, and I,
1: and I'm, I'm unabashedly a, a, a fruity winemaker. Yeah, um, not myself personally, but <laughs> <laughs> I like fruit. I like to preserve the fruits. so we yeah. ferment super cold. And, yeah, and, and, uh, and that's a
0: that's a huge difference between traditional winemaking in in Europe, you know, yeah. versus what we do, or what is typically done, you know, places like California and yeah. Australia. You know, there's always this, you know, um, yeah cooler fermentation uh typically to to maintain the integrity that fruit wears in the old world you know there's very little temperature control exactly
1: and yeah. chateauneuf is hot yeah i mean it is one hot place yeah and, and so i think you see the the m5 wine which is somewhat a similar blend uh but it's definitely much more fruit driven and much fruitier uh whereas this wine you could you get some more of the of the elements of of uh I, I like I like both of them. I really, I mean, I, I drink a lot of to pop. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy it a, a lot. I enjoy it with food, and we grill a lot, and we grill meat, and, and it's just, it's, I, I think uh, Grenache and Syrah are sort of, the, sort of the, some of the best wines for how we eat in California. Yeah. Um, you know, we use a lot of herbs and, and meat. We grill on oak, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we char stuff, and uh, it's, uh, the, the wines are, it's a really neat wine. I really yeah. Enjoy and it. It, it
0: strikes me too that it's a little more textural, you know. And I think you know in in Europe, sometimes winemakers are more concerned with texture than they are, you know, the integrity of fruit um, when they're when they're making wines. And um, you know, I I dig that. But you know, they, they are they're fun foils um, yeah. uh, for for each other. Um, so you know, but
1: it's 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 also interesting to see you know, and when I say things we can't get away with, this wine doesn't have it. If there's no Pretend on my this is that I can no no pick no, no. Up, it's not pretty. It, but it's a very common. Uh, aspect to what people call old old world yeah. uh, wine is pretending my scene. We we just couldn't have any of that in our wine and, yeah. and be allowed. What I do like about both these wines is that they're reductive, and, and uh, they, is, you could see it as even as just I don't know. Would, I think you probably opened this a couple of days. No, ahead. this this so the Chateau I, I auditioned
0: um, uh, Audrey and I. So Audrey's the uh, the wine director at the uh, Tailgo. We um, just had a couple. I had a couple of Chateau Nafs I were thinking of working with, and, and opened both. And ironically, brought kind of like the less expensive of the two, just because I stylistically preferred it. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: But it, when you first open it up, even just putting it in the glass here, it's changed. And yeah, it, totally it evolved. Yeah, and yeah. I, I love that about wine. I love to see it's. It's growth in the glass and how it, the smells change and get better and better. I leave some of my wines open for, you know, three, four. Uh, we've left wines open for three weeks. Well, and, and uh, bottling
0: and screw cap, you know, the, those are going to be prone to, to more, you know, they're, they're going to be oxygen starved.
1: Uh, well, we're using um, uh, Serenex. So we're, we're using the, the membrane oxygen. Oh, nice. Yeah, so they, they have a, this, this, uh, Theoretically, we did about a five-year trial with these with these oxidative screw caps because we, obviously we couldn't put a reductive wine with a complete shutdown. Yeah, yeah. Like like the Stelvin, so for rosé, shut it down. It doesn't oh, need, okay. it doesn't need to breathe. But for M5 white and M5 red, we use the breathable screw caps, and it emulates a two-inch cork. So it's oh wow! It's called a thirty year uh, ageable.
0: But uh, it's more consistent, and there's but it, there's no cork taint. Yeah, and yeah. It
1: more, no cork taint, and it really, we so they they offer different levels of oxidation, uh, and you know we tried the five and the ten and the thirty, and we we bottled those wines in over five years just to see how they did, uh, and the five oxidized just way too much. <laughs> I mean, within a couple of years, it was already just not good. Yeah. Uh, but the 31, 30 year one seems to be working perfectly. Yeah. So we still have we have screw caps going back to 2010 now and we open them and they, they you can you couldn't put this reduced of a wine in a non-breathable uh, yeah. closure. Yeah.
0: Um, you have kind of a unique trajectory in, in wine for the sake of, you know, starting in the restaurant world and then, you know, moving into winemaking. How do you feel like that informed your, you know, journey as a winemaker?
1: When I have the shameless self-promotion hat on, <laughs> which I have on right now, <laughs> I think I just can't even imagine uh, starting out to make wine without having the background that I had. Yeah. Uh, we had a grand award wine list. Uh, I had 65 pages of wine. You know uh, how many people come in and taste you on their wines. And then customers open wine and you taste those wines. So you have, uh, you're, you're the smartest guy on the planet about wine. Uh, and to, to to know to taste all these different wines and develop benchmarks, which is what I which is what I developed with the M5 red, uh, and it's the same with the Amaro. You know, it's not Averna, it's not it's not uh, Ramazote, it's yeah. not not Molini. Uh, it's sort of it's sort of I developed. I make my Marl to be sort of a combination of those three. And it's just the same thing with the, with the M5 red. It's, it's not Chateau to Pop. Yeah. Obviously it can't be, it shouldn't be, but it's a, it's an idea of all the hundreds and hundreds of Cote de Rhone and Chateau de Pop Uh, I've tasted throughout my 40 year career. This is, this is the place that I landed on, yeah. on that. And, uh, it just, I think, I think a lot of times if you, if you graduated from UC Davis and you drank beer and you, uh, and you, but you never really had great wine. It's really hard to attempt to make world-class wine without knowing what great wine is. Yeah. And I think the, the, the greatest moment that, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm mentioning Jim so much, but you know, Jim Clannetta was a huge impact on my uh, career. And, uh, and uh, sadly he, just passed away. Yeah, he just passed away. And, uh, but we were visiting who I think maybe is the greatest winemaker in the world, Henri Jallet, and we're walking down into his cellar and we're about halfway down the steps and Henri turns to us and goes, did you go to UC Davis? And we both went, no. <laughs> and he goes, good. <laughs> because he didn't want to talk about the wines in terms of pH and uh, total acidity. He didn't want to talk technical specs. No, he wanted yeah. to talk about wine in a way that we love to talk about wine, you know, where, where it fits in the spectrum and where to, what it what it tastes like and what you smell. And, and the life of a wine. Feel. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, when you, when you talk about your... Being lyrical, I think I think that's what wine is all about. And I, I, I don't um, it was your your restroom right?
0: Oh uh, yeah, the taste. So uh, for the uninitiated, we have um, uh, at Revelers Hour uh, these are really amazing cartoons from an artist named uh, Maurice Chevier. She's a, a James Beard Award-winning uh, grammar uh, with a, a handle called Fresh Cut Garden Fresh Cut Garden Hose, and uh, they're basically like um, uh, cartoon
1: tasting notes. But they're little excerpts of, of tasting notes yeah. that you've you've pulled. And I, I I think you guys probably wonder, like, what the – is he doing in the bathroom for so long? Oh, no, we get a we lot of that. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I read all, every yeah. single one of yeah, them. Yeah. But I, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at some of my – like, especially the Barden wines. Yeah. Uh, they all have a little poem oh, cool. on on the back oh, label awesome. about, uh, about how I feel about the – the making of that particular wine and and why I do it. So I I I think I, I, you know I think describing wine and talking about wine in a way that's that's uh, romantic is 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 a good way to do it.
0: Yeah yeah I mean otherwise you know it just kind of seems you know shallow and pedantic and <laughs> and um, you know it's too profound for that. Uh, so a bit of verse and then I'll close things out with a couple more questions. So this is from the first poet laureate of California. Uh, really cool woman named uh, Ina Kulbrith, who operated a literary saloon um, and welcomed luminaries like Mark Twain and his contemporaries to San Francisco. But this is kind of about Southern California. Uh, And uh, it's in, you know, it's kind of dedicated to Los Angeles, but uh, I think it could equally apply to um, the Santa Barbara Valley. Uh, A breath of balm of orange bloom By what strange fancy wafted me uh, Through the lone starlight of the room that suddenly I seem to see the long low vale with tawny edge of hills within the sunset glow. Cool vine rose through the cactus hedge and fluttering gleams of orchard snow. Far off the slender line of white against the blue of ocean's crest. The slow sun sinking into the night a quivering opal in the west. Somewhere a stream sings far away, somewhere from out the hidden groves, and dreamy as the dying day comes a soft coo of morning doves. One moment all the world is peace, the years like clouds are rolled away, and I am on these sunny leaves, a child amid the flowers at play. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, you know, great, great bit of verse. I, I feel, um, what, what is so special about Santa Barbara? Uh, I feel like it's one of these you know, kind of manifest destiny, you know, Edenic places that people discover and then never leave. Um, And, you know, like looking over your website, you have a lot of like, uh, people are very proud to be multi-generational Santa Barbarans. Um, You know, what's in the water there?
1: Well, you know, the the, the whole, there's just a sudden shift of the California coastline uh, right before you get to Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. It's the only transverse mountain range in North America. So oh, so east-west? East, east-west. Yeah. So every other mountain range in North America is north-south. And so all of a sudden you have this... When you're in Santa Barbara at the beach, you're looking towards Mexico City, and it faces south all day long. So the sun sets in the mountains. It rises in the mountains and sets in the mountains. It does you, you would expect it set in the west but yeah. we're looking directly south and it creates in santa barbara a little tropical subclimate because the islands right off the shore protect it and the the prevailing winds uh since there's since there's no end to that uh to to the islands go, go around the outside of the islands and so you get this uh, so in santa barbara you have bougainvillea and uh, pitasporum and tangerines and orange trees and bikinis and a beautiful beach, and it's uh, you know, it's called the American Riviera because it's a very abundant ocean uh, with teeming with the, uh, marine life and seafood and urchins and and a myriad of different fish and, and shellfish, and then then there's the city, and then right behind it, just like in Nice, the mountains shoot up uh, thousands of feet right behind the city, and so it creates a very beautiful bucolic uh, climate uh, that is. Stays pretty uh, similar year round, uh, which is which is lovely. It's, I mean, we're the celebrity situation there is just getting out of control. <laughs> uh, you know, Megan uh, and Harry, of course, being the oh really? Uh, I didn't uh, know that. Yep, and the Sussexes. Yep, they're there, and. Uh, 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 Adam Levine just moved in. Meg, no, no. Meg Ryan's there goes, moved there in. goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There's just a there's just a, a, a plethora of, yeah. of, of of movie stars and, ce- and celebrities there. But once you go over the hill, the whole situation changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking about apples uh, over the hill. So those are that's a cold climate grape. Yeah, it needs and, a period of dormancy. Yep. And so we get you know. Very very cold nights, uh, uh, warm days. But depending on which part of the San Inez Valley you're in, so that's why in one valley, you can have Santa Rita Hills where you're growing Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in one of the one of the coldest climates in California on some of the most correct soils that you could grow Chardonnay and Pinot Noir on limestone, diatomaceous earth, and then as you move further towards the east. You get a little section in the middle there where my vineyard is, which is mostly Rhone varietals. Yeah. Uh, and then, which is the perfect climate for that, as it gets a little bit warmer. And then, when you get all the way to the east to Happy Canyon,
0: which is like my favorite American viticultural area name ever. Yeah.
1: yeah. It, it, you know, it's, the actual ABA is Happy Canyon of Santa Barbara. I know, I know. Because when we applied for Happy Canyon, they said, oh, no, you have to say of Santa Barbara, because apparently there's a lot of Happy Canyons in, in America. Yeah, it's like, I feel like
0: Bob Ross painted a lot of Happy
1: Canyons. Yeah, probably, <laughs> that, that guy hair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's uh, it got its name because during Prohibition, if you wanted to get some hooch, you went back there. There was people uh, distilling uh, oh, back there. So, no, so it was. It was happy. It was happy. Happy, yeah, happy yeah. canyon. Nice. Uh, but back there, the the, the whole in our environment has completely changed. There's a mesa that separates it from the coastal influence, mm-hmm. uh, and then the soils are all ancient soils. There's serpentine and granite and iron. Uh, very very denuded soils and great for growing uh, Bordeaux varietals. Uh, even maybe a little bit too cold for Cabernet Sauvignon, but the Cabernet Franc and the Merlot uh, do really really well there, and Sauvignon Blanc, and that's that's what's mostly planted there. And I think, I think there might be a consensus in California that Happy Canyon might be the best place to grow Sauvignon Blanc in California. Oh, cool. uh, certainly, every Napa. Uh, Sonoma County winery is down there buying grapes like crazy from Happy yeah. Canyon, and they're planting more Sauvignon block like crazy too. Yeah.
0: so I mean, it, you end up with a lot of strange bedfellows. You know, you wouldn't think of Rhone varietals butting up against, you know, Pinot and and in Chard and and it's it's this really unique situation. So like, you know, we're drinking a wine in Chateauneuf. Uh, I had to look this up, but from the 44th parallel. Yeah, um, you know, and and Chateauneuf is is you know. Uh, as Mediterranean as it gets, and then um, Santa Barbara's at the 34th, you know, so you are, you know, 10 degrees removed closer to the equator, yet, you know, you're working with cooler climate varietals, which is kind of wild.
1: Well, it's it's you know so we've been doing this for forty years, and I I used to make Syrah from Happy Canyon. Now I wouldn't even dream of making Syrah from Happy Canyon. Yeah, I'm I'm making a lot of Syrah from Santa Rita Hills now. Yeah, which is you know it's really dramatic how cold Santa Rita Hills is, and to be growing and I to get both Syrah and Grenache from Santa Rita Hills, and so we've we have moved colder from from warm to cool to cold, uh, and it's it's that's that's the direction we, we've been able to go. And even when I first started, they were growing Cabernet in Santa Rita Hills. It was terrible. Yeah. Uh, it was green. You couldn't, you couldn't ripen. It was too cold. So yeah. now all the Cabernet is out in the, in the Happy Canyon. So it's, it's, been, it's taken decades, of course, to find out which grapes grow uh, in the best place. But the migration of road varietals into the, the cooler areas has been pretty, pretty amazing. And the quality is off the charts.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like the secret's out? you know, for the sake of Santa Barbara and its wines? Or do you still like, you feel like you still have some proselytizing to do?
1: I think the secret is not out at all. Okay. Um, we, you, I see wine list and travel around, especially, obviously, we're not in Europe at all, but travel around to uh, markets in the United States. And Santa Barbara is very underrepresented yeah. as, as far as uh, on, on wine list. And uh, you know Napa's the most famous wine region in the world, yeah, and uh, it's just, it's still I and uh, we and we don't have a really super consistent story since we make we make so yeah. many different styles. of You don't of have like wines. a single iconic cabernet. Yeah, it's not like know. Napa cabernet. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, and and, uh, uh, and we and we're we're doing well. We don't really have to uh, since we're all, there's no one just like huge. There is now. I mean, I mean, California uh, always already
0: has a Napa. I feel like it doesn't need another Napa. No, it yeah.
1: doesn't, but. It, it's it, it. There tends to be a more smaller family-owned wineries, and not there is now. Corporate is coming in. Obviously, Kendall, yeah. Kendall Jackson's in. Uh, uh, Gallo just just departed, which is fine. They're, they're, they're really great people. Really, and, and really good good business people. But they're they they they've sold their little bastion they had in, in Santa Barbara County. Uh, so it's mainly just uh, uh, KJ, and then and then a lot of people buying grapes from down there. Joel Gott, Duckhorn, yeah, um, uh, are all down there.
0: Yeah, and, and I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, the secret is just to get the wine in people's glasses, and then you know. Hopefully, that inspires a visit, and they'll never leave. Yeah,
1: and you're seeing, I mean, if you read Giloni's reviews and, and Jeb Dunnick's reviews of Santa Barbara County from the last couple of vintages, I mean, they just are just saying, this is the most important wine region in California. They're, they're, put, they're putting that in writing. Yeah. And I think uh, I think it's it's two things. It's, it's the stylistic change that people are looking for lower alcohol, lighter, higher acid uh, wines more, that are more fruit-friendly, because you just can't drink these bombastic, uh, over-extracted wines. Yeah. Uh, very so much.
0: you know, Santa Barbara is the wine that's waiting for you after you blow through, you know, <laughs> all the things you heard of and yeah. you know thought you'd like. Um, yeah. uh, and you know, there's enough variety there to you know last a lifetime.
1: Yeah. And I see. I also think that you're, and I think you mentioned this when you were tasting the wines. Uh, the prices, uh, they're really, they're really good value. Yeah. Santa Barbara really represents good value. Yeah. But it's not, it's not an easy entry at all. It was before, but the, the land prices and the yeah. cost of living in Santa Barbara is just through the through yeah. the roof and that's sort of what propelled a lot of people to go up to paso robles because it is an easier entry up there yeah. I mean, and if you just look at the the great prices from you know how they did the 1855 classification of bordeaux it was easy the five that sold for the most money yeah. were the first <laughs> <dress>. <laughs> and so if you look at how much grapes sell for in santa barbara county versus some of the other counties uh, surrounding us you know we're we're significantly higher grape costs. You'd be the first growth of the modern era. There you go.
0: Brilliant. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much thank uh, you. for joining us, Doug Margin Pleasure to have you with us. Uh, thank you all for listening. We will most definitely have both of these bottles for sale uh, at uh, Reveler's Iris, being uh, Doug's flagship uh, M5 from uh, Margin Wine Company and Shopping uh, de Pop from uh, Bois de Barcin. Uh Thank you, as ever, for listening. Stay thirsty and stay tuned for more of the universe in a glass.